Well, it's good to see people connect and hook up here from different places. Yeah. It's very heartwarming, I think, because uh, we're all after the same thing, aren't we, Michael? Yes. The only thing there is. So shall I, shall I um, read the first question that you sent me? Yes, the, the, the oldest one that I sent you. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. uh, it's, someone asked, uh, Michael, not all of us on this path progress at the same speed in learning to understand and practice Ramana Maharshi's important teachings. Is it possible for the human self to actually ask the higher self, the I am, for specific guidance to find a quieter mind or for greater success in, with self-inquiry. To put this another way, does the true self guide us by bringing us to our uh, consciousness important, passage, important passages, thoughts and understand, or bringing to our consciousness important passages, thoughts and understanding, which we need for our growth? Uh, the simple answer is yes, but I, I, I wouldn't express it in exactly these terms, but yes, our real, what you call the, the higher self, but there are not two selves, there's not a human self and a higher self, there's only one self. Our real nature, what we actually are, in other words, our self as we actually are, is pure being. That... Uh, what we now take ourselves to be, that the pure being is what is always shining as I am. I am is means I exist. I That is our being. But now, when we rise as ego, we are not aware. We are always aware of ourselves as I am, but we're not just aware of ourselves as I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this person. So, the higher self is not something other than ourself. It's our own real nature, what we actually are. But by raising his ego, we have seemingly separated ourselves or limited ourselves. That that is our real nature is infinite. It is beyond time, space, and everything. It's infinite in every possible way. It, it is also immutable. It's ever unchanging. Its nature is just being, not doing anything. So how can this, that, that pure being, how can it help us? It, that, uh, the pure being that we actually are is not only pure being, it's pure awareness and it's pure love. That is, uh, what we actually are always loves us as we actually are. That is, let let us call what we actually are. Let us call it Bhagavan, because it is, it is, uh, it is our own real nature that has appeared outwardly in the form of our Guru Bhagavan Ramana. So let, let us refer to our higher self as Bhagavan. Bhagavan, though in our view Bhagavan seems to be a person, what he actually is is our own reality, our own uh, true nature, what we actually are. Because our minds are outward going, it was necessary for him to appear outwardly in human form in order to give us these teachings to turn within. But he hasn't been guiding us just in this lifetime. Since uh, from time immemorial, because he's our own real nature, he's ever been guiding us. He's ever been uh, 
uh, gradually preparing us to come to this path and gradually giving us the love to follow this path, to turn back within and to uh, reach our real nature. So it is our real nature that has appeared outwardly in the form of Bhagavan in order to turn us, to, to turn our attention back within. But it is not only in this life when he has appeared outwardly in human form that he has been guiding us. He's been guiding us from time immemorial, from, we cannot say, I mean, from the moment we first rose as ego, whenever that was, he has been guiding us because he is our own real nature. So he is always, uh, uh, he's, and because he's our own real nature, he doesn't see us as other than himself. Because he doesn't see us as other than himself, he loves us as him as himself. So he loves us as we actually are, not as we seem to be. So our love for ourselves is our love for ourselves as this person that we seem to be, whereas he loves us as we actually are. And because he 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 doesn't see us as other than himself, his love for us is infinite. So his his help and his guidance is always available. He is always helping and guiding us. Even when we're turning outwards, he's doing his work within. But how is he doing his work when his nature is just pure being? Though he's pure being, he is also pure love. As pure love, he everything is happening. That is what the pure the, the infinite love that he has for us as himself is what we experience as his grace. So we experience his grace helping us, his grace guiding us. But actually his grace is not doing anything. It is doing everything without doing anything. It is just pure being, but by its very nature as love, it is bringing about what all the help that is required. Bhagavan uh, indicated this in Nana, in Who Am I? In the 15th paragraph, he, he gives the analogy of the sun and also of a magnet. He says, just like the sun uh, rises without, um, without will, desire, or effort, uh, but in its presence, so many things happen on earth. And just like the magnet, um, without doing anything, it attracts the iron. Uh, likewise, uh, God, by by he by the he says the term he uses in Tamil is Isan Sanidana Visesha Matratal. That means by the by by the mere special nature of his presence. His presence means his being. So just by being as he is, he is doing everything. Everything that is, hap is happening as it's meant to happen, just by his being as he is, because his nature is pure love. So whether we pray to him or not, he is always helping us. But so what is the benefit of prayer? Why should we pray to him? The benefit of prayer is we are opening our heart to him. That is, he's always willing to help us. But he's always shining in our heart as our own being. But we are ignoring him. We, our mind is constantly going out, chasing this thing and that thing. So we are, by turning our back on him, so to speak, we are obstructing the flow of his grace. So by prayer, we are opening our heart. We are, we are giving our consent. We are signing a blank check. 
to him to do I, to do what he wants to do, which is to swallow us. Eventually, that I mean, that's the ultimate aim. It's it's by our losing ourselves as ego in ourselves as we actually are, that we that we finally reach the goal that we are all seeking. So, um, uh, by praying to him, we are we are. We are attuning our will to his will. That if we pray properly, not if we pray for give me health, give me wealth, give me um, a long life, and uh, put me, send me to heaven after I uh, after I die. If we're praying for all these things, that is not the that is not the proper prayer. The proper prayer, the the ultimate prayer is not my will but your will. In one verse in uh, Arunacha Patikam, Bhagavan uh, prays, Ninishtam enishtam imbadaku. That means your will is my will. That is happiness for me. So if we pray correctly, what he wants for us, he, because he is our own real nature, he wants nothing else for us than for us to be happy. But he's not going to cheat us with giving us all these, uh, giving us transient, fleeting, insubstantial, worldly pleasures. He wants to give us the real happiness that is our own real nature. Actually, he need not give that to us because it's already ours, but he he reveals to us that our real nature is infinite happiness. That's how he gives us the happiness that we already actually are. So, um, uh, we need to surrender our will to him. So if we pray to him for this or that, we should be very careful. But what we are praying for is what he wants for us. What he wants for us is for us to be infinitely happy. We can be infinitely happy only by surrendering this ego. So Bhagavan has taught us how to pray. In um, he, Bhagavan has written five hymns on Arunachala. Arunachala is... is Though Arunachala appears outwardly in the form of a hill, Arunachala is God or Guru, appearing outwardly in that form, but actually always shining in our heart as our own being. As Bhagavan says in the second verse of Arunachala, um, um, uh, uh, Pancharatnam, he says, you always dance in the heart, as, you're always dancing in the heart as I. Uh, so the sages say, heart is your name. So heart means our the very center of us, of what we actually are. So he's he. What is shiny in our heart as I? That is Arunachala. That is Bhagavan. Um, so uh, Bhagavan prayed to Arunachala. Prayed as if to be outward name and form. But it's very clear if we read the verses of Arunachala Stutipanchyam carefully, Bhagavan is repeatedly saying, "You're shiny in the heart. You're shiny in the heart." So he's both. Outwardly, he's praying to the outward form of the hill. Inwardly, he's praying to the reality of Arunachala, which is ever shiny in our heart as I. So in these five hymns, Bhagavan has taught us so many ways to pray, ways that are in tune with his will, not, not praying for this or that for our benefit, but praying ultimately for all Bhagavan's prayers are prayers for the annihilation of ego, which is the only worthy goal, because any other goal is something achieved by ego. So ego has to be there to enjoy anything else. If we want to experience the infinite happiness that we actually are, we need to be willing to surrender ourselves completely. That means we, we need to be willing to embrace the destruction of ego. So that's what um, Bhagavan's prayers are all about. 
Uh, it's all about that destruction of ego. And the, um, among these five hymns, the, the, the largest and most important one is one called Arunachala Akshara Arunachala Akshara Manamalai. Um, that is, it, it, Bhagavan sang that in, with the barber of a young girl who is praying to her Lord for eternal union. The Lord is Aranatya, the young girl is Bhagavan. Um, this is a, in a lot of devotional poetry, love poetry, it is, uh, it is expressed in this barber. The barber seeking union, seeking oneness, that's the, 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 the significance of such prayers. Uh, not all the verses are explicitly on this bar, but, but many of them are. But they're all praying only for that uh, that re reunion or that merging back into the source. So those are these are tremendously important verses. And if we re but though they are Aaron they just they're actually one line verses, but they're always printed in two lines because they're too the line is too long. It's each each verse is a single line of seven metrical feet. And the, the last metrical foot is always our, the name Aranachala. So it's actually just got six met metrical feet in each verse. But in spite of the brevity of the verses, there's so much deep meaning and implication um, packed into them. So if we read these, these verses, we will we will begin to understand what true prayer is. Of course, prayer is not just words. It's not just asking for things. Ultimately, um, that is the, the prayers is to, uh, are that the words are a means to channel our will in the right direction. But ultimately, prayer is the yearning of our heart. So, if you have a yearning heart, you are praying whether you are consciously uh, mouthing words or not it uh, you, you are, but the prayer what prayer ultimately is is the yearning in the heart and what is the best prayer of all since since what we should be praying for is to give ourselves to surrender ourselves wholly to him and since the means by which we can surrender ourselves wholly to him is only by turning within the greatest prayer, the best prayer, is self-investigation itself. That it is practice of Atmavichara. This is the, 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 the best prayer of all. But for that, it requires great love to turn within and to remain with our attention inward turn, not allowing our attention to come out towards anything else. That requires great love. And because we are lacking that love now, our mind comes outwards. So so long as our mind is coming outwards, it's suitable to pray for the love to return back within. So, yes, absolutely, we can. I mean, Bhagavan is our own self, what you call the higher self. That is what has appeared outwardly as Bhagavan. That is, it is not, Bhagavan is not something other than ourself. He's our own reality, what we actually are. That which is shining in our heart as I am, that is Bhagavan, that is Aranachala. So we, we need to understand that. So we're not praying to some God out there in heaven or anything. We are praying to the God that is ever shining in our heart as our own being, the one true God, our own real nature. Um, so uh, regarding the, the later part of your question, 
um, you, you, oh, well, the, the questions you ask is, is it possible for the human self to actually ask the higher self, the I am, for specific guidance to find a quieter mind or for greater success in self-investigation? Yes, it is possible, and it's appropriate to pray for anything that is, uh, that is conducive to our turning within. That is, our ultimate aim is to turn and subside back within and thereby merge back into the source from which we rose. So any prayer that is in tune with that aim is a, is a suitable prayer. And then you say, to put it this another way, does the true self guide us by bringing our conscious, to our consciousness important passages, thoughts, understandings, which we need for our growth? Yes, absolutely. He is guiding us in so many ways, not only bringing to our awareness all these, um, his teachings and all these, uh, the understanding and the clarity, but he's working deep within our heart in a very subtle way, but we cannot cognize because our minds are out for going. If we want to know how his grace is working in our heart, we need to look deep within to see that. So the more, the more we follow this path of self-investigation that he is taught us, the, more, the deeper we go within, the clearer all these things will become to us. The clearer Bhagavan's teachings will become to us, the deeper we go in the practice of them. Because Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice. They, Bhagavan didn't come just to teach a nice philosophy. He came to teach us the means, the practical means by which we can surrender ourselves. That is, merge, subside and merge back within. And that means is turning our attention within. So though Bhagavan sometimes talked as if there were two paths, self-investigation and self-surrender, he also made it very clear that ultimately self-surrender, the, the complete self-surrender can be achieved only by self-investigation, by turning our mind within. So I, I hope that was an adequate answer to that question. I, I don't actually know who asked the question, but um, if if the person who asked the question or anyone else would like to ask anything more on this, please uh, feel free to do so. Well, I have a question. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and it's one that's bugged me for a long, long time, and I'm sure you'll give me a quick one-sentence answer to it. Uh, <laughs> As I God. always do. <laughs> <laughs> They're long sentences. Uh, Michael, if you, as you say, if there is only one self, of course, yes. uh, if the higher self and the human self are one and the same, in Maya, higher self, how do we know for sure which self we're coming from? In other words, I can only think one thought at a time. <laughs> and, and sometimes I'm aware of uh, the, the brilliance, the, the eternal bright light of the higher self, but often I'm more familiar with the thoughts, the mind of the human self. How do I make that distinction? Okay, well, as I say, there is only one self, there are not two selves, there's not a higher self and a lower self. So why do we talk sometimes as if there are two selves? Why do we distinguish ego, which is what we now take ourselves to be, the self as we now experience ourselves, and uh, what we actually are? What we actually are is the pure awareness, the pure being, I am. When I am shines alone without any adjuncts, that is our real nature. 
But now, there, oh, and, uh, there's never a moment when we are not aware I am. In waking, throughout waking, we're aware I am. Throughout dream, we're aware I am. Throughout sleep, we're aware I am. But one fundamental experience, but it's ever shining, is I am. We're always aware of our own being. Whatever, whether we're aware of anything else or not, we're always aware of our own being. In sleep, we're aware only of our being, not of anything else whatsoever. In waking and dream, we're aware of our being and we're aware of other things. What is aware of other things is not our real nature. It's not the pure I am that is aware of all these things. It is ego. And ego, what ego is, ego is the, the adjunct mixed awareness I am this person, I am Ted, I am Michael, I am whoever. Um, this, this adjunct mixed awareness, that is, we mix and conflate ourselves with a set of adjuncts. The set of adjuncts we mix and conflate ourselves with is what Bhagavan generally referred to as body. But what he means by body is not just the physical body. He says in Uludunapdu, Udul Pancha Koza Uru, the body is a form of five sheaths. Why does he say this? But what, firstly, what are these five sheaths? The five sheaths are the physical form of the body, the prana or life that animates this body. In other words, all the physiological function, the breathing, the, 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 the heart, heartbeat, the blood circulation, the, all the neurological functions, all these physiological functions are, are what are collectively referred to as prana or life. Um, so there's a physical body. We never experience a dead body as I. It's all, whenever we experience a body as I, it's always a living body. So there's the body and the prana, the, the, the form and the life that animates it. And we also never experience a sleeping body as I. It's always a body that seems to be awake. Even in dream, we're experiencing a body as ourself. That body in dream seems to us to be awake at that time. So in a waking body or a dreaming body, whatever we choose to call it, there is always um, the mind, the intellect and the will are also functioning. So these five are called the five sheaths. That is the physical body, the life that animates it, and the mind, intellect and will that function within it. In this context, mind is referring to the, uh, the term mind has, uh, has different meanings in different contexts. In this context, mind means the grosser functions of the mind. That is uh, perception, memory, uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions, all these grosser functions, all the functions of the mind other than the intellect, which is the, the judging, discriminating, discerning faculty of the mind, and the will, which is the, the will is all our likes, dislikes, desires, and uh, uh, fears, and so on. These all collectively make up the will. But the, the seeds that give rise to all these are what Bhagavan refers to as vasanas. Vasanas means the inclinations. So it's from the, the, these seeds, these inclinations, but uh, when they sprout, they sprout in the form of likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. So all of these collectively are what are called the will. So these five, body, um, 
body, life, mind, intellect, and will, these five make up the person we seem to be. So when I say I am Michael, Michael is a name given to a particular body. And in that body, there's a particular, there's a life, there's a mind and intellect and will all are functioning there. So this bundle is what we call the person or what Bhagavan refers to simply as body. As ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body. One important thing to notice about uh, to note about this body, about all these five sheaths, is though they seem to be ourself, they are all actually objects. That is, ego is the subject. The subject means the knower, that which experiences all these things. This, these five sheaths are all objects. That is, this body is obviously an object. We can see it objectively. Uh, the prana, the, the life, we can see, we can see the breathing, we can, uh, the, the heartbeat, all these physiological functions are perceptible, so they're, they're objects. Likewise with the mind, the perceptions, the memories, the thoughts, the feelings and everything, we experience all of these as objects. Likewise with the workings of the intellect, the, the judging, discriminating and everything, all these we are, are things of which we are aware, so they're objects. Likewise with the will that consists of, in its subtlest form, with the vasanas. These are all things that we are aware of, but we experience. We experience inclinations, we experience likes, we experience desires. Desires don't experience themselves. It's we who experience, I have a desire, I like this. So it, these are all objects, but we identify ourselves with these objects. So we, ego is the subject. It is not an object, it is a subject. But ego cannot rise, stand, or flourish without identifying itself with this set of objects called a body. So ego, our real nature, our higher self, if you want to call it that, but that's a rather misleading term, what we actually are, uh, but what Bhagavan referred to as Apmaswarupa, that means the real nature of ourself is just I am. The pure awareness, pure being, I am. That is what we actually are, that is what Bhagavan actually is, that is what Arunachal actually is. Ego is the same I am, but mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am such and such a person. I am Ted or I am Michael or I am whoever. So. When we are praying, it is we as ego who are praying. When we're investigating ourselves, it is we as ego who are investigating ourselves. When we uh, surrender ourselves, it is we as ego who are surrendering ourselves. So these are all, and it is we as ego that are seeking happiness. Our real nature isn't seeking happiness because it's infinite happiness itself. It's, there's no, our real nature is not lacking anything. So our real nature doesn't do anything, it is just being. But by the, as I say, its very being is itself infinite love. So by its just being as it is, the grace is functioning. Everything is happening as it is meant to happen, simply by the special nature of its mere presence, the mere special nature of its presence, as Bhagavan says. Okay. Have well, I answered your question or? <laughs> I would guess whoever wrote that has a complete thorough understanding now, but you answered my question, yes. And just shy of moving on to the next question, one last chance for anybody else to ask on what Michael's been commenting on so far. And I don't see anybody waving their hand. So let's move on to the next question. 
okay. The, the next question I was asked was, apparently Bhagavan highly recommended reading and recitation of the Ribu Gita. Why do you think this is so? And do you have a favorite passage from it? Um, I, a long time ago, I read some portions of Ribu Gita, but I've no, I don't think I've ever read the entire, well, um, I think what was generally read, recited in Bhagavan's presence was a, a, a Tamil translation of Ribu Gita. Um, in a lot of books, it is said, Bhagavan recommended this, but we need to put this in context. That is how this recitation began. In the very early days, when Bhagavan was living in uh, Virupakshi cave, uh, a number of sadhus came and were living with him. Most of these sadhus came from uh, different mats. Mats means like monasteries. Uh, it, uh, it, well, it's not exactly like a it's not exactly the same as a monastery, but it's somewhat equivalent to a monastery. In Tamil Nadu. There are a number of different uh, of different types of of mats. There are Vaishnava mats. There are Shaiva mats, and there are Advaita mats. Um, generally, the Shaivism and Advaita tend to be close together in Tamil Nadu. Uh, not all Shaivites are Advaitins, but most Advaitins will be uh, will tend to be Shaivites. So a lot of these sadhus came from either Shaivite or um, or Advaita background, or usually a, a mixture of Shaivite and Advaita background. So in those Shaiva Mats, it is the tradition to uh, recite devotional works and also Jnana works. But in, particularly in the Advaita Mats, they recite things like the Ribu Gita, the um, uh, works like um, um, Kaivalya Navanitam, which is a Tamil Advaitic work, and various Advaitic works. Some of them also recite Sanskrit works, but generally in Tamil Nadu, it's mainly the Tamil works, except in the, in the, um, the Shankara Mats, they tend to be more, um, more towards, uh, lean more towards uh, um, Sanskrit, whereas other Mats lean more towards Tamil. Um, but, and, but many of the, many, Many Tamil works have been translated into Tamil, sorry, many Sanskrit works have been translated into Tamil and Tamil works have been translated into Sanskrit. So there's a lot of overlap between them. Ribu Gita, I believe, was originally a Sanskrit work, but I, I, I believe there's a Tamil translation. It's the Tamil translation, but in those early days in Virupakshi, sadhus used to recite it. Um, in those days, Bhagavan had written very little. Um, some of Bhagavan's early writings, very early on, he translated um, a work of Shankara called Viveka Chudamani into Tamil. He was, all these things he did when requested to do so. But he translated that into Tamil prose, so that wasn't recited. One of the earliest works he translated was uh, um, a, a Shaivite Upa Agama, but happened to be a Dvaitic in its content. Generally, the, Upa Agama, the, the Shaiva Agamas, they tend to be a little bit dualistic. But this particular one Bhagavan came across, someone gave him the Sanskrit manuscript of a, of a chapter from, a tech, from a, an Upa Agama called Devikalotram. Most of the Agamas are, are laid down for procedures for temple worship. 
and for ritualistic worship. But this particular chapter that Bhagavan came across, it was very Advaitic in its import. So Bhagavan translated that into Tamil. That was one of the early works. But there were very few works composed by Bhagavan in those early days. Even Arunachya Stutipanchakam, I think three of the works of Arunachya Stutipanchakam, Arunachya Aksharamlai, Arunachya Patikam and Arunachashtakam, they were composed about 1912. Um, and um, I think Arunachya Pancharatnam was about 1917. And Arunachya Navin Malai was uh, a collection of nine stray verses that Bhagavan composed at different times. So prior to 1912, there, were, there was almost no works by Bhagavan. So because of the, the custom in in um, among sadhus in Tamil Nadu, they used to recite, recite these works. So one of the works they recited was Rubu Gita, because that's something they all knew from their, from their time in, um, in the Advaita, the time they'd spent in Advaita Mats. Uh, Rubu Gita and another popular one, um, I'm not sure if there's a Tamil translation of it, uh, is um, Ashtavakra Gita. That is often said, you'll often read where it, in books where it said Bhagavan highly recommended Rubu Gita. They also say he highly recommended Ashtavakra Gita. These are all nice Advaitic texts, but they're, they're, they're the basic principles of Advaita are, are given there. So it, it's, it's a good thing to recite these things so that these ideas sink into your mind. But Bhagavan didn't come just to recommend a few old texts. Bhagavan came to give us fresh teachings. That is, what Bhagavan teaches is the purest Advaita. But whereas people who have studied Advaita, studied so many, studied all the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, the commentaries on them, and so many other uh, texts like this Rubu Gita and Ashtabhakra Gita and um, uh, Yoga Vashistha, so many Advaitic texts of that. People who studied all these things, they still didn't know what the practice was. Yes, everywhere it said in Yoga Vashistha, it repeatedly says, Vichara is the way. Uh, Adi Shankar also in, in emphasized that this cannot be attained by kar any amount of karma, but only by Vichara. So this word Vichara is there, but what is Vichara? If you go to most, if you go to a traditional, that is a classical Advaitin, and ask what is Vichara, they will begin to teach you about um, what they call Prakriyas, which are uh, methods of discrimination by which you, you, dis, you distinguish yourself from objects. For example, Driktrisya Viveka, that is distinguishing the seer from the seen. We are not anything that is seen, we are not any object, we are the seer. So all these um, intellectual analysis, this conceptual analysis to make us understand that we are not this body or not this mind or not any of these five sheaves, we are just I. That's as far as they go. But what do you do then? Okay, I know I'm just I, but still I've got all my problems. And still, I, I still feel, though I, I understand all these things, I still experience myself as I am Michael, I am this person. So what's the, well, what is the practical means? Most, most Advaitins haven't got a clue what the practical means is, or they may, they may say something, but they don't really understand. So Bhagavan came to 
make clear what is the practice. And also, because Advaita is a philosophy that has been around, um, well, Shankara lived about um, maybe about 13, 1400 years ago. Advaita was there even before Shankara, but Shankara. Um, Shankara uh, established it as a as a as a as a, as, a um, as one of among the many systems of Indian philosophy. Um, so, but we can't say Shankara uh, founded Advaita. He was there before him. His his guru's guru Godapada wrote an Advaitic work called. Um, uh, uh, Mandukya Karika, that's a, a verse commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad. In the Upanishads themselves, which go thousands of years before Shankara, or at least a, some many of them, at least a thousand years before Shankara, many more than a thousand years before Shankara, they're full of Advaitic ideas. Of course, the Upanishads can be interpreted in different ways, but they're, they're, they're seed ideas of Advaita are there. So Advaita is a very ancient philosophy, but it was established as a major contender, we can say, by Adi Shankara. Um, but what is the... Advaita is more than just a nice philosophy. Advaita is pointing to the ultimate truth. But what's the point of, of being pointed to the ultimate truth if you don't know how to get there? So Bhagavan, first of all, he simplified Advaita. Uh, where is it? Because it, when when people try to understand things with their mind, they make it more and more complicated. And because Advaita was one among many different systems of philosophy, it was competing with so many other systems of philosophy. So more and more elaborate arguments had to be developed to defend Advaita against the others and to attack the others and so on. This is just the way philosophy works. But this is missing the point. What is the purpose of all this? It's not just to, um, to argue and, and defeat others in argument. This is not what, uh, what true Advaita is about. True Advaita is about knowing and being what we actually are. That is what Bhagavan came to reveal. So firstly, Bhagavan simplified. He expressed the, the core principles of Advaita in an extremely simple manner. and in an extremely practical manner. That is, if you take any work of Bhagavan, whether it be uh, Nana, who am I, or Uludu Napru, the 40 verses, or Upadesh Undia, or Anma Big Day, or, um, or Ekama Panchikam, or even Apalapatu, which was a song he sang for, his, for the sake of his mother, which is about how to make Apalam, how to make, uh, I think, uh, usually in the West they're called Papadom or Papad. Or, uh, there's, uh, Bhagavan wrote, a, the, wrote his teachings in the form of a recipe to make the, the Apalam. So, um, but it's all containing practical clues. And the Arunachastuti Panchakam, though it's in the form of prayers, of stotras, of hymns of praise, full of practical, um, uh, practical guidance for following this path. So the one core purpose of Bhagavan's appearance in this world was to teach us the practice, teach us the means, teach us the path. So works like Ribu Gita, they will give you the general principles of Advaita, but they don't clearly show what is the means to they was there are lots of verses in um Ribu Gita that will say, I am I am this 
pure Brahman, I'm pure consciousness, I'm pure being and everything. But how to experience ourselves as such? If we, are, if we have a deep and subtle mind, we, as Bhagavan points out in verse 32 of Uludunaptu, uh, Bhagavan said, when the, the, the Vedas say you are that, in, uh, I'll paraphrase it because what he implies is, is uh, that is, the way he says it is in a very compact way. What he implies is when the Vedas say you are that, what should our response be? Our response should be, oh, if I am that, then what am I? It, that is the reason the Vedas say you are that. You are that means you are God or you are Brahman or whatever. Till now, we've been looking for God or Brahman or happiness or knowledge or all these things. Whatever we've been looking for, we've been looking for it outside ourselves. But the Vedas say you are that. What? It, why do they say you are that? Because what Brahman or God or whatever we take it to be is not something out there. It's not something other than ourselves. We ourselves are that. So when you are told you are that, what should your response be? Your response should be, if I am that, then what am I? We should turn our attention back within to find out what we actually are. That is the purpose of the Mahabhakya, the great saying that Tattvamasi, Aham Brahmasmi, and such great sayings. You are that. Uh, I am Brahman, Pagnanam Brahman, the, uh, awareness itself is Brahman. I am Atma Brahman, this very self is Brahman. All these are pointing our attention back at ourselves. People not understanding this, they begin to they begin to reason about it. How can this little me be that big thing uh, called Brahman? And they try and analyze it and they try and reason it out. That's missing the point. You are Brahman means investigate yourself, know yourself. So what Bhagavan says in that verse 32 is, when the Vedas say you are that, instead of um, knowing and being what we actually are by investigating what am I, uh, 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 thinking I am not this body, I am that, is due to weakness of mind. Um, so, uh, um, that the purpose of the uh, Mahavakyas, the purpose, why it is said in so many, that, that is what is said in Rivagita is in effect a repetition of the, um, the Mahavakyas. I am Brahman, I am consciousness, I am Shiva, I am this and that, whatever it is, I can't remember the details, but it, that's more or less the theme of running throughout Rivagita. Why is that dinned into us? For what purpose is, uh, should we din that into our mind? in order to turn our attention back within. If we turn our attention back within, Ribu Gita, all these Vedas, Upanishads, everything has served its purpose if we turn our attention within. If we don't turn our attention within, no amount of Upanishads, no amount of Brahma Sutras or Bhagavad Gita's or Ribu Gita's or Ashtabhakra Gita's or anything is going to uh, save us unless we turn our attention within. All these texts are useful only to the extent to which they turn our attention within. So I would say it is, it is a bit of an exaggeration to say Bhagavan highly recommended reading and recitation of Rupa Gita. Yes, that was happening in his presence from the early days. Later on, when Bhagavan composed Aranachas Dutipanchakam, and then after Murugana came in the 1920s, he composed uh, uh, Anma Vidya, Upadeshundia, Ulladu Napadu, 
these works slowly started replacing. I think they may have still continued recitation of some of those old works, but slowly the old works were pushed out because Bhagavan's own works were there, which are far, far deeper and far more practical than any of these old texts. So yes, Vibhu Gita is certainly a good text, but when we come to Bhagavan, when you, when you come to the PhD standard, when, you, when you're studying for a PhD in university, you don't have to go back to the kindergarten to learn your ABC again. So it, it, for those who understood and truly follow Bhagavan, Ribu Gita is not necessary because Bhagavan is so much deeper and more advanced than that. But many of those who came to Bhagavan were not so mature. So they, for them, the Ribu Gita was still important. So they uh, continued uh, um, reciting Ribu Gita and Bhagavan, yes, he encourages, because he, Bhagavan encourages everyone at their own level. So for those people who are not yet ready to go so deep in the practice, Ribu Gita is a very good uh, work because it keeps on reminding us that what we actually are is that. That will slowly, slowly sink in and slowly our attention will turn back within. But if we want to, if we don't want to delay beating around the bush, but simple and direct and very clear, crystal clear, practical teachings are given by Bhagavan. Very good. You've answered one, if not two questions that he's implying here. And David's with us, and I'll get to David in a second, mm -hmm. but I don't know that you answered the third one, and maybe there is no answer. Do you have a favorite passage from <laughs> No, because I haven't read it. Um, okay. So, if Bhagavan did highly recommend it, but I'm a very poor, very poor follower of Bhagavan because I've never, I, I mean, I think I, I've seen the book, I've read a few passages here and there, but it's, these things are not, a, if we've understood Bhagavan's teachings, these other things, they're nice, but they're not really so appealing because it's, it's like if you're studying PhD, the, um, the ABC, and times table won't be so appealing to you. Of course, you're applying what you learned in the kindergarten or every day. If you're studying for PhD, you're, but what you learned in the kindergarten about ABC and, um, and uh, your times table and all these things, you're applying, but you're not every day sitting down and reciting your um, a, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, G. We don't have to repeat that. Likewise, this Ribu Gita, it's a good preliminary text. It's good to, to din in the basic principle, you are that. that is, but once we've understood I am that, then what should we do? We shouldn't go on repeating, I am that, I am that, I am that. We should, what am I? We should turn our attention back within to find out what we actually are. I think I got it. <laughs> but many people haven't David. got it. Many people, who, even though they lived many years with Bhagavan, they still didn't get it. Well, I'm very much still in kindergarten. In fact, one of the things <laughs> well, we all are. Yes. I, I, sorry. I, please don't get me wrong, but I'm both. I'm in PhD standard. I'm, I'm just using an analogy. We're all in kindergarten. We're all trying. That is, but we at least we need to recognize the great value of Bhagavan's teachings, how Bhagavan's teachings are so much deeper than all these other things. It's imperfect. That is, these other things are in perfect tune with Bhagavan's teaching, but they're just not going so deep. They're not, they're not dinning in the practice as Bhagavan is constantly dinning in. Yeah. 
Yeah. David, uh, what do you think? Do you have any follow-up questions? Did he trigger you, uh, your curiosity to go deeper into this or what? Thank you, Michael, uh, very greatly for your uh, explanation there. Um, you know, and making the very excellent point that Bhagavan's teaching is the direct path as opposed to sitting around wondering uh, about Advaita philosophy. The story I heard about the Ribu Gita was that, and again, you never know if these stories are true or fable, but that he gave a copy of this book to a woman who was working in the kitchen at the ashram and said something like, uh, here, this is all you need. Uh, this will get you to Samadhi or something like that, which raises another question, and that is... <laughs> uh again it, it even to say such a, it, that rings untrue to me because i don't think the goal is samadhi the goal is self-realization <laughs> yes. which is quite yes. different yes but anyway uh, thank you yeah. but but a, a mother will give the appropriate food to the children according to their age so to the newborn baby she will give her breast milk to a slightly older child, she'll give some um, some food that is suitable for that child. So just because Bhagavan may to certain individuals recommend saying this is all you need, it's like the mother saying to the baby child, this breast milk is all you need. Are we to go and feed uh, living off breast milk all our life? No, it, it's it's appropriate food for us at the, when we're in the early stages of our life. We have to be weaned off that onto more um, more food that is more appropriate for an adult as we go on. So for for those starting on this path, Ribugita is a very good text because it's dinning in the basic principle. You are that. I, I am Brahman, I am consciousness, I am, I am, that, 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 that basic principle of Advaita is din din. But we need to go beyond that. Once we've understood that, how should we apply it in practice? Merely going on thinking, I am that, I am that, is not going to solve, it's not going to solve the problem. Roll up your sleeves and work hard day and night. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I like it. Thank well, you. And how do we work hard? Not by doing anything, but by turning within and thereby subsiding and just being as we are. That's the hard work we have to do. And, and for me, that is hard work. But it is hard work for all of us because we have so much enthusiasm to jump out. It, <laughs> it seems to us to be effortless to jump out and uh, to roam about in this world yeah. when actually that it requires effort. Because why do we get tired every night? Why is it necessary for us every 16 hours or so after 16 hours of activity to fall asleep? Because we've got we've exhausted ourselves by rising and being active. But rising and being active seems to us to be so easy until we become extremely tired uh, at night time. Whereas turning within, which is not doing anything, but just ceasing to do anything seems to us very difficult. It's because of the enthusiasm with which we jump outwards. That enthusiasm is what is called Vishaya Bhasanas, the inclination to seek happiness in things other than ourselves. Because we are so, um, so immersed in these Vishaya Bhasanas, we are, we, we are jumping out with so much enthusiasm 
So it seems to require a lot of effort to turn back within. Well, but ultimately, as Bhagavan said, you will laugh at all your effort because you're already that. You, there's nothing actually. Uh, there's what seems to us to be so difficult now to turn our attention within and thereby to be as we actually are. When ego is annihilated, we'll find that's our very nature. We always were as we actually, even now we are as we actually are, but we're not aware of it because of our outgoing attention. Thank you, thank you. Uh, anybody else have any questions or comments from what was read into the questions that David wrote and the first series of questions? Mukta, I saw you had put your hand up for a second or two and uh we're happy to take that now <clears throat> yeah i appreciate that thank you so much um so yeah i have quite a few questions but i'll <laughs> ask one of this when you answered the first question i had this which is also i i wrote as well um basically if we are the self there is nothing else exists other than us and that seems to be um if that seems to be the ultimate, I have two questions actually. If that seems to be the ultimate purpose, but in this world we are doing a career, you know, a profession or a career or a passion or whatever we're going after, that all seems very minuscule. So, should we keep our ultimate goal as the only goal, or where everything else fits in in life? Um, is my question. Okay, very, very simple answer. Keep the ultimate goal as the only goal in your life if you can. That is the wisest option because everything else will take care of itself. Um, we, may be, we may be married, we may have a husband or wife, or uh, we may have children, we may have elderly parents we need to take care of, we may have a job, we may have so many responsibilities. But for whom are all those responsibilities? They are for Mukta or for Michael or for Ted or for whoever. But, and all these things, whatever responsibilities we have, this is all part of the prarabdha. That is, whatever is, to, is destined to happen is going to happen. So if, if we have responsibilities for our family, if we need to earn a living, we will be made to earn a living and to provide for them. It, that need not concern us. If we are wise, we will turn our attention within and uh, merge back into our source, because that is the only useful effort we can make. Any effort we make outwardly is not going to change what is, what is going to happen an iota. It's already completely preordained. Of course, we're free to try to experience what is not destined, we're not destined to experience. We're free to try to avoid what we are destined to experience, but we cannot, uh, we cannot avoid what is destined and we cannot experience anything that is not destined. So you can happily leave your entire life in Bhagavan's hands. He will take care of everything. Very, very, two very important passages of Bhagavan's teachings are relevant in this context. The first one is the first teaching Bhagavan gave in writing, to the best of our knowledge. As, far, as, as records go, this is Bhagavan's earliest teaching. That is, Bhagavan had come to Tirunamalai in September um, 
1896. And he had left, uh, uh, he'd left his home in Madurai, leaving a note saying there's no need to come seeking this. So his family had no idea where he was for some time. After a year or so, someone saw him in Tiruvannamalai, someone from Madurai saw him in Tiruvannamalai and recognized him. Oh, that's that uh, little boy Venkataraman who ran away. Uh, so he, uh, he uh, went back to Madurai and he informed Bhagavan's family, but uh, Bhagavan was now living as a, a sadhu in uh, Tiruvannamalai. His mother wanted, obviously wanted to come and see him because she was, uh, if, if a mother suddenly one day her 16-year-old son uh, walks out of the house and leaves a note saying, no need to come seeking me, I've gone to do my father's work. Obviously a mother, how will a mother feel? So she wanted to come and see Bhagavan. But uh, her husband had passed away. Um, some five years earlier, that is when Bhagavan had passed away, sorry, when Bhagavan was 12 years old, his father had passed away. So she was a widow. And um, her eldest son had just begun working. That is Bhagavan's elder brother. He'd just begun working, but he was had some, I don't know what his job was, probably a clerk in some office or something. So very small salary. So they couldn't have, he could, his uh, eldest son couldn't afford to, um, to bring his mother. And there was also a younger brother and a younger sister to be all taken care of. So they were in very, uh, they were very poor in those days. Um, so his mother wasn't able to come immediately. But um, after about a year, that is in December 1898, his mother was finally able to come with her elder son. She came to Bhagavan. In that, in those days, Bhagavan um, was living on an eastern spur of the hill called Pavalakundru. Um, there's a temple there that's just behind, uh, I don't know if you know Tiruvannamalai, it's just behind the spur of uh, Arunachal, just behind the Dogama temple. Uh, so Bhagavan was living in the uh, mandapam in front of that temple. Um, so his mother came there, and she was pleading with him to come home. She said, "If you want to, if you want to live this life of tapas, if you want to do your meditation, you can do anything. But at least you should come home and allow me to take care of you." She was pleading with him. Bhagavan was just sitting there, keeping quiet. In those days, Bhagavan seldom if ever spoke, very, very rarely did Bhagavan speak. So Bhagavan was just keeping quiet, not responding. So some of the, um, some of the other people who were present, it pained them to see Bhagavan's mother weeping and Bhagavan just sitting there without uh, showing any sign of response. So one of them finally uh, gave Bhagavan a paper and pencil and said, if you don't want to reply in um, in uh, by speaking, at least give your mother a reply in writing. And then Bhagavan wrote on that note. It's a very, busy, as I say, this is Bhagavan's first written teaching, and it's an extremely important teaching. Abharabha prarabdha prakaram adakarnavan angangirindu artvipan. That means, according to the according to the destiny of each one, 
Adhikanavan. Adhikanavan literally means he who is for that. That implies God or Guru, but one who, who ordains the fruit of the karma. Adhikanavan, Angangirindu. That means being there, there, implying being in each place, each and every place, thereby implying being in the heart of each, each person. Uh, Artavipan. Artavipan literally will cause the dance. In other words, he will make us act in accordance with our prarabdha. Some, many people misunderstand this, but Bhagavan has said, all our actions are uh, actions we're made to do by God. That is not the case. If, if, if all our actions were actions we were made to do by God, then it's God who should experience the fruit of karma. Why should we experience? If he makes us do the karma, why should we experience the fruit? That is obviously not the, what Bhagavan meant. We need to understand what Bhagavan meant. What Bhagavan meant there is, Prarabdha means what we are, it's the fruit of our past action, but it's been selective for us to experience in this lifetime. So everything that we are to experience is preordained. Whatever is to happen is going to happen as it's preordained. But in order for us to experience things, for example, it may be your, your destiny today to eat a, um, well, probably it is, I hope it's your destiny today to eat at least one meal. But in order to eat, in order to experience that the, the, the satisfaction of eating a meal, you need to do something. You need to put the food in your mouth. You 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 can't you can't eat the food without without doing something. So there are certain actions that are necessary for us to do in order for us to experience what we are destined to experience. So all the actions that are necessary we will be made to do by God. That doesn't mean that all the actions we do are actions we're made to do by God. The majority of our actions are actions we're doing under the sway of our vasanas. Those are the actions, but bear fruit, and but we later have to experience of the prarabdha. So what Bhagavan says, whatever is meant to happen, if you're meant to do something, if it's, if it's your destiny, to, if you're, if you're a mother, for example, you have to fend for your children, you have to take care of your children. But it's your children's destiny to be taken care of by their mother. So you will be made to do those, whatever is necessary. So whatever actions should be done, we will be made to do those actions. That's what Bhagavan means there. Then he goes on to say, in the next sentence, he says, Endrum Naduvadudu, uh, that means what is never to happen will not happen however much effort is made so you can you can want you can want something that is not destined supposing you're not destined to become very rich or very famous or very learned or something you can want just because you're not destined to become rich doesn't mean you can't want to become rich so you can want to become rich you can try to become rich but you cannot become rich so uh, however much effort you make however much you, uh, strongly you desire to be rich and however much effort you make to become rich you will never be rich if you're not destined to be rich. That is the meaning. So that itself implies not all our effort, not all our actions are actions we're made to do by God. We're also doing actions according to our will. That's under the sway of our vasanas. So in that sentence, he says, what is never to happen will not happen however much effort is made. 
the, uh, what, the, next, sen the next sentence, he says the opposite. Nadapadu in tadeseinum niladu. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. So if it's your destiny to, um, uh, to suffer something, if you're, however much you may desire to avoid that suffering, and you may try to avoid that suffering, if it is to happen, it will happen, come what may, whether you like it or not. Um, so what is, what is not to happen will not happen. What is to happen will happen. However much effort we make, that is the, what Bhagavan means in most two sentences. Uh, and then in the next sentence, he says, Iduve tinnam. This indeed is certain. That is it. That's a very emphatic way of saying this, absolutely certain. Um, and then he concludes that note by saying, Ahalin monamai irike nandru. Ahalin means therefore, monamai means um, uh, silent or silently. Monomayirke means either being silent or silently being. We can take it either way, but it amounts to the same. Whether you say being silent or silently being, Nandru is good. But Bhagavan doesn't say that's the best or anything. Bhagavan is always a, a master of understatement. Being silent is good. So what does he mean by being silent? Does he mean we should sit like a rock and not do anything? No, because he's already said whatever we are, whatever we need to do in accordance with prarabdha will be made to do. What he means by being silent is not rising as ego. If we rise as ego, we will be swayed by our vishayabhasanas and we'll be trying to do so many things to avoid what we don't like and to achieve what we do like. Um, being silent means not rising as ego, in other words, subsiding back within. So how is that relevant to his mother? Because his mother wanted him to come home with her, and basically he was saying, that is not to be. What is to be alone will be. Even if I wanted to come with you, I couldn't come with you unless it's my day. That is, I, I, I wouldn't be able to come because it's my destiny to be here. That's the implication. Of course, Bhagavan won't say that explicitly, but that is what he implies there. So that is very important, that, that particularly that first sentence, whatever is necessary for us to do, we will be made to do. Whatever is not necessary for us to do, we're free to do it. We're free to try to do anything we want, but all we are doing is, is creating fresh uh, uh, fruit for experiencing in future. So the, what is good is just being silent, not rising as ego. How can we avoid rising as ego? Bhagavan doesn't say there, but the whole of his rest of his teachings are a commentary on this. How to be, how to be silent is what his teachings are all about. So long as we are facing outwards, we are active. But that is, the outward movement of our attention is mental activity. And mental activity leads to activity of speech and uh, body. So uh, being silent means turning our attention within and subsiding back into our source. That we have to understand from the rest of Bhagavan's teaching. So that's one passage I, uh, that's very important. A very closely related passage is the uh, closely related its implication. It was given in a different context, and the implication is the same, is, 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 is identical. That is the 13th paragraph of Nana. 
what Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph of Nana, he first, in the first sentence, he gives a definition of what is surrender. What, what does it mean to give oneself to God? What he says in that sentence is, um, Anma chintane tadira, vera chintane kalambadriku, satram idum kodamo. That means not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than Atma Chintana. Atma Chintana literally means thought of oneself. By implication, it means self-attentiveness, in other words, self-investigation. In other words, what Bhagavan implies there, we need to attend to ourselves so keenly, but we thereby don't give room for any other thought to rise. Because no other thought can rise unless we attend to it. If our whole attention is absorbed in the attending to ourselves, there's no room for any other thought to arise. Bhagavan didn't, didn't ask us to avoid thought. He just asked us to hold on to Atmachintana, to, to be self-attentive. But to the extent we are self-attentive, we are thereby not giving room for thoughts. But if we try to avoid thoughts, that's not being self-attentive. We need to just, our aim is that Atmachintana. That's why he begins that sentence with the word Atmachintana. That's the main point. Hold, uh, thinking only of ourselves, in other words, attending only to ourselves. So that's an adverbial clause. He said, uh, not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than Atma uh, Chintana. But the main clause is, Anmanishta Paranai Iripade, Tanai Isanuku Alipadam. Anmanishta Paranai Iripade means being as Atmanishta Paran. Atmanishta Paran, Atmanishta means to be established as oneself. Atmanishta param means one who is established as oneself. In other words, being as we actually are, how can we be as we actually are? By clinging so firmly to self-attentiveness that we don't give room to the rising of any other thought. So what he refers to there as, um, as being Atmanishta param, uh, not giving the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than uh, thought of oneself. That is what he meant in the final sentence of his note to his mother, Monomai Yerike Nandru, being silent is good. That is being silent. That is attending to ourselves so keenly that we give no room to the rising of any other thought. That is being silent. That is being Atmanishta Paran. And he says, Atmanishta Paranai Irpade, Tannai Isanuku Alipadam. That alone is giving oneself to God. So, though Bhagavan often said there are two ways, Either investigate yourself or surrender yourself. That is to, to draw people in from different, some people are more inclined to the devotional path. So surrender will seem more appealing to them. Others are more inclined to uh, investigation. So vichara will seem more appealing to them. But actually they're one and the same because you, you Without vichara, we can only surrender ourselves to a certain extent. We can try our best to surrender our will to God, to give up our likes and dislikes and so on. But we cannot completely give up our likes and dislikes. So long as we rise as ego, likes and dislikes are inevitable. We can lessen the extent of our likes and dislikes, but we will still have likes and dislikes. At least some traces of likes and dislikes will remain. If we want to be free of likes and dislikes, desires, attachments, 
fears and everything, we need to be free of ego, the root of all these things. Because who is it who has desire? Who is it who has likes and dislikes and fears and all these things? It's only ego. So that's why Bhagavan talked about Atma Samapanam. Atma there means self, but it's not, our, obviously we can't surrender what we actually are. Self there refers to ego. So Atma Samapanam means surrender of ego. So we can surrender our will only by surrendering ourselves. That we can surrender our will to a certain extent without surrendering ourselves, but we cannot surrender our, uh, our will completely without surrendering ourselves, surrendering ego. So that is what he referred to in this sentence as Tanne Isanuku Alipadam, giving oneself to God. That means completely handing over charge to God. So in that sentence, he's saying, but if we want to surrender ourselves completely, we need to be so keenly self-attentive, but we don't give room to rising of any other thoughts. Then we can say, oh, no, no, Bhagavan, I've got so many responsibilities. I've got my elderly parents. I've got my husband or my wife. I've got my children. I've got my job. I've got so many responsibilities. How can I uh, remain like this? Bhagavan gives the answer in the next sentence. In the next sentence, he says, however much burden we place on God, he will bear all of it. Why does he say that? Because what he's implies by the, in the first sentence is that we should, even the burden of thinking, we should surrender to God. Let him do, if any thinking is necessary, let him do the thinking for us. Our aim is to give ourselves to him. So we give mind, speech, and body to him, everything we give to him. So who are we to think anything or to do anything? We've handed ourselves over to him. So it's he who has to think for, to, if thinking is necessary, let him think for us. So since he implied that we have to surrender even thinking to him, he gives us an assurance. Do not fear. However much burden you place on God, he will bear all of it. So this is the most direct answer to your uh, question. That, um, should we, what should we make our aim? Our aim should only be the annihilation of ego. Leave all other response, cares and responsibilities to Bhagavan. He will take care of everything. Excellent. Then he goes on to say in the next sentence, since one Parameshwara Shakti, Parameshwara Shakti, uh, Ishwara means God or the ruler. So Ishwara Shakti means the, the power of God or the ruling power. Parameshwara, Parameshwara Shakti means the supreme ruling power or the power of the supreme God, um, uh, of God the supreme, we can say. So since that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, Karyas in this context means whatever ought to happen, whatever is meant to happen, whatever, whatever is meant, we, we are meant to do, whatever we ought to do, he's driving it all. So since everything that is meant to happen is being made to happen by him, that's the implication, why should we, instead of our yielding ourselves it, Bhagavan refers to that power as it, that is, uh, um, that is God and his power obviously one and the same, so he's referring to God as it there. Instead of yielding ourselves to it, why should we be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? In other words, we shouldn't concern ourselves with anything. We, our own sole aim should be to surrender ourselves to him. 
let him take care of everything else. I see, whether we surrender to him or not, he is always taking care of everything. So, uh, by, and then he gives a beautiful analogy in the last sentence. He says, uh, uh, when traveling on a train, we know the train is carrying all the burdens. So why should we who are traveling in it suffer carrying our luggage on our head instead of putting it aside and traveling at ease? That is, whether you put your luggage on the seat beside you or on the luggage rack or carry it on your head, but your luggage is going to reach the destination because it's being all carried by the train. By carrying it on your head, you're just suffering unnecessarily. So what Bhagavan means there is, leave all the burden to him. What is our duty? Our duty is monamai irakei nandru. Being silent is good. And to be silent, that means we have to give ourselves wholly to God, not rise as ego. And we can give ourselves wholly to him only by turning our attention within and clinging firmly to Atmachintana, to self-attentiveness. So excellent. <laughs> does that adequately answer your question? Mukta. Yes, uh, yes, yes, thank you so much. Um, Mukta, I want to wait before we get to your next question. And I'm glad he answered it for you because we're into our last half hour. And I just want to take a real quick scan to see if anybody else has a question. And if not, we'll come back to you. But I see I see Ron's raising his hand and I see a couple other people who might be interested. So uh, Ron, go ahead and then Mukta will come back. Yeah, thank you, Ted. Um, yeah, Michael, I'm wondering how attending only to ourself relates to compassion. If you if you in if you're dreaming and in a dream you may see a war, you may see a famine, you may see a pandemic, you may see poverty, all sorts of injustices and suffering you may see in a dream. What is the greatest good you can do to alleviate all the suffering you see in a dream? wake up yep and how to wake up from this dream well you know following a, a path not following a path following the path there's only one path that will wake you up all right because the sleep the sleep in which this dream is occurring is the sleep of self-ignorance okay, so, so, that's all and good, but when we're when we reach that ultimate state, okay, it's the absolute truth. But for most of us, we're not in that or we don't know we're in the ultimate state at this moment. So in the meantime, on the way there, isn't compassion useful to do then, something? Then if if you Go back and read Ribu Gita. What does Ribu Gita say? You are already that. Yeah, that's great. But I don't know I'm already that. So it's that just is words what, in a book. That is why self-attentiveness is the way to know that you're already that. Oh, I, I do, do not get me wrong. I am not against compassion. So long as our attention goes outwards, we should be compassionate. Not only should we be compassionate, if we are truly following Bhagavan's path, we will definitely be compassionate. What does compassionate mean? Compassion, passion means suffering. Com means with. 
It means suffering with. When we, when we see someone else suffering, it pains us. So we suffer with them. That is what compassion is. So the more we go deep in this path, the more we will, um, the, 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 uh, the boundaries between self and other will dissolve. The more we will see ourselves in the others. So when we see others suffering, it will pain us to suffer. A very impure mind, a very cruel mind, will not be dis disturbed by the suffering of others. So long as I'm not suffering, doesn't matter about others. I can inflict any amount of suffering on, on others, so long as I'm doing okay. That is the immature, the impure mind. But mm. I, if we're following this path, our mind is getting more and more, um, the dirt is getting more and more removed from our mind, so uh, we we it pains us to see suffering. So if when we if we see the world, how many injustices there are in the world? How many forms of suffering? There's firstly the the greatest injustice in the world at the moment is the huge wealth disparity. There are people who have hundreds of billions of dollars, and there are other people who don't even have enough to feed themselves. So many people in this world are, are barely subsisting. They're living in such poverty when there's so much wealth. So there's so much injustice in this world. Even if the world was a very just place, even if wealth was distributed equitably and everything, there's still so many forms of suffering. There's disease, there's old age. Suffering is inevitable in this embodied existence. So when we see the world, we see so many forms of suffering, and it pains us. If we are wise, we will. What can we do to alleviate the suffering of others? Can we even alleviate our own suffering? No, we can't. So, if we are wise, though we are compassionate, Buddha was moved by compassion. What did he do? He was a prince, so surely he could have done something to alleviate the suffering in his kingdom. But he understood. He cannot even alleviate his own suffering. He cannot alleviate the suffering of his uh, beloved wife or his newly born child, because they are, will inevitably grow old, grow sick, uh, suffer all the inevitable sufferings of embodied existence. So he understood to, the, the most compassionate thing to do is to find a solution to all these things. So Bhagavan has given us the solution. The solution is to turn within and see what we actually are, because as soon as we see what we actually are, we will thereby wake up, the dream will come to an end, and we will recognize that what actually exists is only happiness, nothing other than happiness actually exists. Bhagavan says it explicitly in, um, in, in Nana, in the 14th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan begins by saying, Sukham embadu apmabin sarupame, what is called happiness is the very nature of oneself, is only the very nature of oneself. Sukhamum apmasurupamum verandru. Happiness and the real nature of oneself are not different. Atmasukham andre uladu. Atmasukham means the happiness which is oneself alone exists. Aduve satyam. That alone is real. So what actually exists, what we actually are, is only happiness. All this unhappiness, all this suffering we see is because of looking outwards, because we've risen as ego and we look outwards. Definitely when we look outwards and we see suffering, if we are 
if we have got a, a even a slight degree of purity of heart and mind, we will feel pain seeing that suffering. And of course, if we can alleviate suffering, if someone, a hungry person comes to us uh, and we have food, we give them hunger, we give them food, we can alleviate their, if whatever we can do to alleviate the suffering of others, we should do. If someone comes to us um, with mental anguish, we can tell them about Bhagavan's teachings, if they're receptive, of course, only if they're receptive, and we may be able to alleviate their suffering in that way. So there's so many ways in which we may be able to alleviate suffering to a limited extent, but the, to, to put an end to all suffering for all time to come, for, for eternity, when we put an end to suffering, we also put an end to time. So even that, I didn't quite put it correctly there. Um, so if we want to put a, uh, an end to suffering for all eternity, all we need to do is to turn within and see what we actually are. So the more we work to waking up from the dream we're in, where people are suffering all around us, the harder we work at waking up, the more we'll accomplish our goal my feeling in the dream for all the people who are suffering is not logical because they're in the dream if i can afford the time and the space it requires for me to awaken from the dream i'll see that those who were suffering don't exist because the dream not just... only do those people who are suffering not exist head also doesn't exist right so i have to see the whole megillah yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that is we shouldn't take i am the only real person all the other people are unreal <laughs> it doesn't work like that if i am real if michael is real then ted is real um ron is real mukta is real jay is real everyone is real but the yeah. question is am i real is this person that i take to myself to be is this what i really am so long as we look outwards we seem to be a person and therefore we need to be kind compassionate caring about others because otherwise if we do if we're not kind and caring and compassionate towards others we'll be thinking only about ourselves only i matter that's that's what the, the immature people will think in that way but a mature person someone who has at least uh, by god's grace acquired a little bit of purity of mind will not feel i alone matter we will be concerned for the welfare of others and that 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 concern for the welfare of others is contributes to the subsidence of ego because by being by thinking only about me 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 i'm bolstering up this ego when i begin to think about others that's the beginning of 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 surrender of giving up this ego but the, the, the greatest good we can do to others is to turn within and merge back within. So if we shouldn't get caught up in trying to alleviate suffering because there's no end to it. Yeah. You, you solve one problem in the world, other problems will come. So that is not a wise way to go about it. The wise way to go about alleviating suffering, yes, if, if some immediate thing is presented to us a hungry person and, and a grieved person a, um, a person who's mourning a person who just needs to have a sympathetic ear to listen to we should of course we should help them of course we should be kind and considerate and caring about others but the greatest good we can do for all others is by turning within 
and thereby waking up from a sleep that underlies this dream. That sleep is the sleep of self-ignorance. That self-ignorance is what is called ego. Ego is the false awareness, I am this body. That is the, the fundamental ignorance in which this dream is occurring. But the optics, as they say, don't look good. If I'm in this dream and a beggar comes to me and I give him $10, and I pat myself on the back because I've relieved his suffering a, a, an inch. Yeah. Why wouldn't I not sell my house, sell my car, sell my possessions, and give a thousand beggars all my money to relieve their pain? Uh, it, the optics just don't look good if I'm working mostly on awakening myself. The others will say, Ted, why don't you come out and pitch in? Uh, do more. You can do you, more. If you want, you can sell your house. You can give away all you have. But that is not still not solving the problem. That that is we we sh it, it, in this life we need a certain amount of um, of money to live in this world. So let us. It's 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 justifiable to have a certain a minimum a minimum amount of possessions or what is necessary for our survival. We shouldn't be trying to accumulate wealth or something because if we accumulate wealth, since there's only a limited amount of wealth in the world, if I accumulate wealth, I'm depriving others of wealth. So we should we shouldn't take more than our fair share of things. Of course we need you, you, if you give away everything, how you're going to eat, then you'll have to go begging. So it, it's we we need to be realistic about these things. So we we try to live a simple life. Uh, the, the basic needs of our body we have to attend to. So long as we're looking outwards, that is better than looking outwards is to turn within and leave it all to God to take care of. But um, so long as we still take ourselves to be a person, so long as we're still carrying the, the luggage on our head. It seems necessary for us to provide the basics for ourselves and our family, but we shouldn't try to accumulate more. But in, in the midst of all this, the thing is, turning within and doing whatever we need to do in this world are not opposed to each other. Because what is doing actions? It's mind, speech, and body. Let the mind, speech, and body do whatever they're destined to do. If if we try to do anything but we're not destined to do, we're not going to change anything. So you cannot give you cannot give ten dollars to the beggar unless it is unless it's in that beggar's destiny to have that ten dollars. Since it's in that beggar's destiny to have that ten dollars, you cannot avoid giving it. Couldn't it? So you couldn't. shouldn't be thinking, you shouldn't be patting yourself on the back. You should Thank you should thank Bhagavan for making you a um a channel through which he helped that beggar. Wasn't Bhagavan opening himself up to the world was compassion because he didn't need he didn't need us. He didn't no. need any he, yeah, exactly, exactly. Bhagavan is is the is is the very embodiment of compassion. See, for example, the do you know the incident with the hornets? When Bhagavan's uh, leg accidentally brushed against, when his leg brushed against a bush, he didn't know there were there was a hornet's nest inside. So he accidentally disturbed that hornet's nest. Are you aware of that story? Yes. 
he just stood there and allowed the hornets to, to sting him. That is the height of compassion. <laughs> because he, 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 he recognized that they, that they had a justifiable grievance. Their, their nest had been disturbed. So he stood there. And because he stood perfectly still, they stung only that thigh. They didn't sting any other part of his body. Only the thigh that had brushed against the, the, the bush and disturbed their nest. That thigh. So he thought to himself, yes, this, this thigh has done a, a, an injustice to them. Let it receive its punishment. So that is the, that is the true compassion. The compassion we have. We give $10 to the beggar and we pat ourselves on the back. And we've got hundreds of dollars in the bank. So it's uh, what is that? What what is our compassion compared to Bhagavan's compassion? Yeah. Great. We have time for one more question. And Jay, you've been patient there. And Mukta, I know you're going to be coming back. We have a lot of years that you sent in. Jay, go ahead. What do you uh, want to ask? Michael, um, I go out in nature to connect with nature and that way I had a realization that I am the nature. Um, but there seems to be this thing that come comes up, which is when I look at an object, I think I've asked you this before, but I want more clarification, is there seems to be this conversation that I that I need to, I, I am still separate. This conversation goes on in the mind. And when you talk about turning within and noticing the I, I feel like um, um, when I do the Atma Vichara in the nature, I just come back to myself rather than looking at nature. I just know, know myself as that I. And when I stabilize in that eye, I see I see the eye in the nature. Like I see myself as that that essence in the nature. So I'm just wondering if this this sounds um, right because in the first stage it seems like I am separate from the tree. So tree is there and I'm here and I'm, and and the conversation goes on like that. But when I come back to myself as the existence itself, that existence, I see existence as the essence in all, in the tree. That is, that is a mental, that is, that is the mind is saying that I see myself in all these things. But truth mm -hmm. is, so long as we rise as ego, there, there is a basic, the, the fundamental duality of subject and object comes into existence. We, the experiencer, are the subject. Everything else is objects. Among all the objects, we take one little set of objects as I. This body, this, this, these five she's, we take as I. Everything else we experience as other than I. But even, this, even these five she's, which seem to us be, to be I, are not actually I. So, we need to separate us. So long as we there's a subject and objects, so long there's a multiplicity, we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are. 
So to know what we actually are, we need to turn our attention within. Turning our attention within means turning our attention towards ourself alone, away from everything else. When we turn our attention within, ego thereby subsides. When ego subsides, everything subsides because everything exists only in the view of ego. So if ego subsides and merges back into its source, everything will merge back into its source. And then we are not everything. We are the only thing. Hmm. When you say you see yourself as nature, that's just an idea. Nature is, what do you mean by nature? It's some, some idea you've got. Yeah. Who am I? There's only one honest, one truly honest answer to the question, who am I? That is, I am I. I'm nothing other than I. So long as you're aware of yourself as I am this body, I am Brahman, I am nature, I am Shiva, I am this, I am that, that is ignorance. In the true, the true knowledge is not I am this or I am that, but just I am. So what am I? I am just I am, nothing other than I am. Hmm. So there is just myself. Yes, that is that is all there is. But when you say just myself, that doesn't mean just J. It means there's just I. Yeah, that when I when I'm referring to I see myself in the tree, I'm referring to that. Like I see I see just I everywhere. No, you don't or, see I everywhere. That that is you. You're imagining you see I everywhere. Mm -hmm. you, you, it's it's simply not the case. So long as we rise as ego, we experience self and other. Mm. So and just, also, if if I is one, so if mm -hmm. you see yourself in the tree and see yourself in the stone and see yourself in the car and see yourself in the factory and see yourself everything you've got how many eyes have you got mm. this is all just mental bhagavan says very nicely in the 13th verse of uludunapadu jnana mam tane me that means oneself who is a jnana or pure awareness alone is real nanavam jnanam agnanamam knowledge of multiplicity is ignorance so, so long as you know more than one, that is ignorance. Hmm. Because the truth is, ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. But I'm not sure if Bhagavan has said this, but I've heard it, that um, when someone comes to see Bhagavan mm. in, in the ashram, yes. um, he doesn't differentiate himself from them. Like um, we are all we're yeah. all one kind of kind of one. It, that's 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 how he treated people or all beings as that's how we understand it, but mm -hmm. in Bhagavan's view, there is no others. It's not that mm -hmm. he's seeing others as himself, he is seeing no others, he's seeing only himself. Because oh, yeah. he's seeing the underlying reality, whereas we are seeing the snake, he's seeing the rope. In other words, he's seeing exactly the same thing that we are seeing it, but he is seeing it as it is, which is as I, whereas we are seeing it as all this multiplicity. What we are seeing as many, he is seeing as one. 
what we are seeing as objects, he is seeing as the reality of the subject. Yeah, we cannot is. conceive his state. In verse 33, I think it is of Udnafdu, he said, they talking about Vinyani, they do not see anything other than themselves, they do not know anything other than themselves. Who can or how to understand their state as it is thus? Our mind cannot understand his state. If we want to understand Bhagavan's state, turn within and merge back into the source. Thereby, you can know Bhagavan only by being Bhagavan. And you can be Bhagavan only by being swallowed by Bhagavan. Yeah, this clarifies because I, 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 it has been, I, 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 the eye rises and now I see as other. But yes. when I just come back to myself, only I alone remains. But I, but think of sleep, but, but think of sleep. In sleep, what do you experience? Nothing. You experience nothing? Yeah. Who is experiencing nothing? You say, I experience nothing. Yeah. So Myself. you are experiencing I. Yeah. So in sleep is the, 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 the sample we are given of our real state. It is the state in which we are not aware of anything other than our own being. Of mm. course, our impression now of sleep is a clouded impression because now we are not aware of ourselves as in sleep we we're aware of ourselves as we actually are when we rise as ego this ego covers over the shining of our real nature it makes us seem to be something other than what we actually are but what we experience in sleep that is what we actually are pure awareness pure being one only without a second so every time, I, I just want to end, end with this. So every time I am, wherever I am, when I just turn back to myself, that, that is it. When I just notice I exist. Yes, but, but so long as you come out again, you haven't yet merged in your own being. So you need to attend to I more and more. The more you attend to your to I am, the more you will thereby subside and merge back into I am. When you attend to yourself keenly enough, you will thereby lose yourself in yourself. That is what we are moving towards. Until then, we need to persevere in the practice. So there is just existence in, in the end. There is just yes, the yes. source. They're just you. You he are another existence is another name for you. What yeah. exists? Bhagavan says, Yatatamai Ulladu Apmasarupa Mondre. What actually exists is only Apmasarupa, the real nature of ourself. Michael, we're gonna halt here because of time, but I liked yeah. how you phrased the one of the many answers to his questions a couple of minutes ago when you suggested when he says he sees the trees and he sees the I am and everything and everywhere and your reply seemed to be but there is no everywhere there yeah, is yeah. nothing else. yeah yeah <laughs> so long as you're seeing trees you're not seeing yourself as you actually yeah. are and again Bhagavan says very clearly in the third paragraph of of um of Nana unless that jagadrishti the perception of the world ceases 
Swarupadarshanam, seeing one's own real nature, will not arise. And as you cannot see yourself as you actually are and see the world. As we close it out, does anybody have a parting shot of appreciation or can I can I just say one more thing in that connection with in, in connection with what Bhagavan says in the third paragraph of Nana, and he repeats a similar he said this, the same thing in a different way in the fourth paragraph. Why is it that we cannot see our real nature so long as we're seeing the world? And why can we not see the world when we see our real nature? The answer is simple. The world appears only in the view of ego. Only when we rise as ego and are aware of ourselves, I am this person, are we aware of the world? As Bhagavan says in the fourth, fourth verse of Uludunapadu, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So we see the world only when we see ourselves as I am this body. So long as we see ourselves as I am this body, we are not seeing ourselves as we actually are. So when we see ourselves as we actually are, we will not see the world. When we see the world, we are not seeing ourselves as we actually are. Mickey, do you have a closing line or comment or even a question? I would just like to thank everybody who's participated and especially give my thanks to Michael. Thank you so much. All special thanks to Bhagavan because he you bet. I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has said. I know nothing myself. I'm just uh, pointing what, out what Bhagavan has taught us. That's what he says all the time, Mickey. Sankari. Well, that's, that's the truth. I have to be honest. I can't be dishonest about this. I know. Sankari, are you with us? Yes, Ted. But anyway, I want to thank Michael and everybody, but I know his answers. So, Monomai Irike Nandru. Ahalin Monomai Irike Nandru. Therefore, being silent is best, Bhagavan said. Yeah. It's, good. it's good. It's good. Not even best. real anyway. <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, the satsang I've been attending last few weeks, and I'm, I'm thankful. Thank you. Uh, what, what is satsang? Satsang yeah, means sat? association with sat. What is sat? You are <laughs> sat. Yeah. So associating with ourself, being as we actually are, that is satsang. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, I thank you, Michael. And uh, earlier in the day when I was thinking the same thing about satsang, that the satsang uh, uh, with the self is the uh, real satsang, yes. and even a satsang with the Brahma Gyani is secondary yes. to it. Yes, yes. Yeah. Bhagavan used to yes. say, the best satsanga is Atma Sangha. Yes. And, and for, so, as you say, the second best is association with the Atma Gyani. But more than just being in the People attach a lot of importance to the physical presence of the Atmanyani, but the Atmanyani is also present in his teachings. So keeping our mind dwelling on his teachings is the uh, after that is second best to dwelling, keeping our mind dwelling on ourselves, keeping our mind dwelling on his teachings, because his teachings are constantly pointing our attention back towards ourselves. Yes. And uh, and today's uh, satsang, I noticed that uh, though Shravana was happening, Manana was happening along with it, and I realized Nidhi Dhyasana 
itself was happening together simultaneously like it was one thing absolutely absolutely if we if if we are doing shravana correctly or if we are doing manana correctly we should be doing manidityasana at the same time because what are bhagavan's yeah. teachings all about what is bhagavan constantly pointing our attention towards towards ourselves alone so if if we are merely listening or merely thinking about it without attending to ourselves we are not doing the shravana or the manana correctly I, I hesitate to say thank you, Michael, because I know your response, but we do appreciate your presence here every month and look forward to seeing you again. Right, right. Okay, thank, thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>